0: Well, I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 3 John. We're looking at 3 John once again. And we're looking at the third man that is mentioned in this letter. His name is Demetrius. And he's mentioned in verse 12. And so we're going to spend a lot of time on verse 12, but we're also going to consider the final verses verses 13 through 15. So today, Lord willing, we will complete our study of Third John. I want to begin reading at verse 12, and so you follow as I read. It says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. How important is a good testimony? And I'm not talking about the one that you have about coming to Christ. I'm talking about what others say about you. Because John tells us that Demetrius has received a good testimony. Now this is the opposite of Diotrephes. What others said about him was not good. He loved to be first. He didn't accept what John said when he sent the letter to the church. He unjustly accused John and his colleagues with wicked words. And he did not receive the brethren, but put them and those who did out of the church. John said in verse 11 that what he was doing was purely evil. John also didn't want anyone imitating his evil behavior. Now, Demetrius, on the other hand, was good. And he demonstrated that he was of God. Did you know that the Proverbs mentioned how important a good name is? In fact, it says it in Proverbs 22 and verse 1 that it's more desired Than great wealth. Did you hear that? It's more desired than all the money, all the riches in the world. And before I say more, I need to tell you that I'm not literally talking about your name, I'm not talking about my name, I'm talking about what our name implies. When you talk to someone or you meet them for the first time, you hear their name, and obviously you don't have any information about them to have any kind of opinion or impressions about them. But over time, as you get to know them, you do. And so therefore, when you say the name of an individual, we're not talking about the name itself. We're talking about their life. And that's what Proverbs 22 is talking about. When people hear your name mentioned, what do they immediately think about you? As I said, a good name is talking about your reputation. It's talking about your character. It's identifying who you are from a moral and ethical standpoint. Essentially, it's what you're all about. Solomon further added in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1 that a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. In the words of Rabbi Simon, who said, There are three crowns you have the crown of the law, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of royalty. But the crown of a good name surpasses them all. Just like we saw in Proverbs 22, one, it's greater than all the wealth that is in the world. So your name has a reference to your character. It has a reference to your reputation. Someone said good character equals good name. Bad character equals bad name. And let me just illustrate this by two people in the Bible. All of us remember Jacob. The Bible tells us that his name meant deceiver. And his name fit his character very well. Because he started out as a deceiver, a trickster. He actually tricked Esau out of his birthright. And he deceived his father out of Esau's blessing. But God later changed him. And after he changed him, he renamed him. You know what he renamed him? Israel. Because he had, according to Genesis 32, 22 and following, he had striven with God and with men and had prevailed. Another name that we all know, is Judas. What does his name mean? Immediately you probably think traitor. No, that was his character. That was his behavior. Interesting that his name meant praise. It meant let God be praised. It comes from a Hebrew word yada, which means to praise. But there was certainly no praise from his heart or from his lips. It was rather deceit and deception and lies and hate. And yes, he was a traitor to the Lord Jesus Christ, betraying him with just 30 pieces of silver. Yesterday I spent a little bit of time tracking down what the value of those 30 pieces of silver were. And uh, here's what I came up with. First of all, it's mentioned in Matthew 26:15. Judas asked, "What are you willing to give me to betray him to you?" So He was speaking to the chief priest. And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. The parallel is in Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13. And it appears to point out, however, that, that there were shekels mentioned in that verse. And the shekels was equivalent to four drachma, or about 60 cents. Linsky agrees, and he says the 30 shekels or the 60 drachmas or denarii, it would be about $10. He betrayed the Son of God for $10. The Jews of Jesus' day who offered that amount were basically saying that he was worth no more than a common slave. Albert Barnes says, this sum was fixed to show their contempt of Jesus and that they regarded him as of little value. Now, to us who know him, you, you can't put a value on him, can you? You can't put a value on his work either. But you can see from these two examples that names are important because they are attached to reputation and character. Now, on the other hand, there is a Greek word, eo which is translated opinion. And it refers to someone or to something. You have an opinion about someone. You have an opinion about something. And it was used as a term actually of great esteem or great regard. For example, it was used of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 and verse 34. It says that there was a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. That's that Greek word. He was very respected. It was also used of the Jerusalem apostles in Galatians 2.2. It says, It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation. And again, same word. We find it used in Philippians 2.29 to speak of Epaphroditus. Who Paul says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. So you just find from that word alone that speaks of this great esteem or this great regard or this this opinion about others that it's also speaking of respect and reputation and high regard. Now, we get the idea of a good reputation also from verse 11. If you look down at verse 11 in Third John, John says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So what others think is important. You might be the type that says, I really don't care what people think about me. Well, you should care if what they think about you or say about you is not good. That it's not right. That what they have to say about you is really a reference like in verse 11 to evil in your life. You know, there are some people that always likes to talk about the past. And they never talk about the here and now or the future. There are some people that like to talk about what you used to be like, and they don't talk about what you are now, which is different than what you used to be like. But what others think about us is certainly important. In fact, it can affect your entire livelihood. I used to be an employer and used to interview potential employees, and we would ask for references, and I'd have to spend time chasing down the people that they referred to about them. And you know as well as I do that if you're turning in something, a resume or an application for a job, you're not going to give any bad references. You're not going to give names of people that will say something bad about you. You want people that are going to say good things, right? Well, it certainly can affect how you live. We're told in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 7, it certainly affects the ability of those who lead the church. It says that elders must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Why is it important that you have a good reputation as a pastor with those who are outside the church? We can't always take what they say with a grain of salt, but in many cases we actually can because when it comes down to it, that how you live your life in front of unbelievers is either going to make a good impression on them or a sour impression on them. What's your reputation like? It certainly can also affect our decision when we include others in ministry other than pastoral. For example, before Timothy became the pastor of the church at Ephesus, Acts 16 and verse 2 says that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And again, this is very important. We just heard this morning as we were reading in our scripture reading 1 Timothy 5, did you notice in there where it said, do not be haste in laying your hands on somebody and of course that is referring to ordination the Bible teaches the ordination of pastors the ordination of men into ministry and so when you're examining a person for ministry you don't want to just take a person who comes up to you and says hey I feel like God's called me to ministry you know I'd like to get ordained and boom next Sunday we ordain you and that doesn't really work like that it takes time And sometimes it could take a year. It could take two years. Because it takes time to see what the reputation is in the person. Unfortunately, people act differently here in church than they do at home. And so, if you're going to examine a person, where do you need to go? You need to go to their house. And it's not going to take one time to do it, it's going to take a number of times. Because the first time that you go to their house, they're, they got everything prim and proper and right and making sure that you know there's not something there laying on the table that's going to cause a problem and discriminate them toward you, make them where they're not qualified to serve in ministry. But I'll tell you about after the third time, they've got used to you coming. And they begin to get comfortable around you. And that's where the examination needs to be seen. Because once they begin to get comfortable with you, then you begin to see how they really live. Not the pretend way. You get to see that whether what they're saying matches how they live. And again, it takes time. I remember I was involved in an ordination of a young man that I knew, knew him pretty well. And uh, I was asking a lot of questions in that ordination council, and I had the gentleman that was leading that council stop me and tell me that this is not the time for these questions. And I thought to myself, well, when is the time? I mean, is this just procedural? I mean, is this just something that we're going through so that we can say that we did it and then we're going to go out there and put our hands on them and ordain them into ministry? Or are we going to have some serious questions answered? If it wasn't for the fact that I knew the man and I really knew that he was a person who could be ordained to ministry, I would have left that meeting. Because, again, we don't want to lay hands too quickly on somebody because what did it say in the text we were seeing up there on the screen or that you were hearing as it was read in your Bible? There are some sins that are very evident, but then there are some sins that follow after. See, if you lay your hands on somebody, you're sharing in their life, and if they are involved in some kind of sin that didn't come out in the beginning, but it comes out later, guess what? You have now shared in that sin. That's what that text is implying. That's why you don't want to do it so quickly. That's why you want to be careful in your examinations. Now, as we begin to look at verse 12 here in 3 John, we hear John mention three testimonies in this verse. And all have to do with a good name or reputation. John said that they came from others, they came from the truth, And it came from John and his colleagues about Demetrius. So let's notice the first testimony about Demetrius as we look at verse 12. John says that Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. He received a good testimony from everyone. That's the kind of response that you want to hear. And here in this case, as we have been talking about 3 John, this is now our third message on it, but as we've been talking about this, you had a situation with a gentleman in the church that did not want to show hospitality. But on the other hand, you had another man who did. And the first man we looked at was Gaius. Gaius showed hospitality. Gaius was a faithful believer in Christ. Gaius was obedient to the Word of God. The second man, which was Diotrephes, Diotrephes wasn't any of that. Diotrephes loved to be first, and because he loved to be first, he did not want anyone or anything bringing that place that he held of high esteem in the church into jeopardy. So John was a threat to him, These traveling itinerant preachers coming into the church were a threat to him. Gaius was a threat to him. Demetrius was a threat to him. Anybody who was of the truth was a threat to him. And we saw last time, as a result of his own pride, how it affected his behavior. And today we want to see the other side. Demetrius has received a good testimony. He has a good reputation. And it was well known. This word testimony is where we get the word martyr. It's martyreo. But the word itself is used in various ways. It's used to speak of testifying. Just like last night in our Thanksgiving dinner that we had, we had two men in our church testify of their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is martyreo. It also means to bear witness. And again, these two men did the same thing. They were bearing witness to the work of Christ. But it also means to speak well of. And here it carries that meaning. And it carries it with the thought of being approvingly testified of. When people would testify about Demetrius, it was with approval. So if Demetrius was running for any kind of political office, he would have got in. He would have had the support of the people. Because everything about him was right. It was good. It showed, according to verse 11, that this is a man you would like to imitate. This is a man who was of God. When people spoke his name, again, they spoke well of him. But what made him receive such a good testimony from everyone? And again, I believe it has to do with the fact that he was a godly man. This was a godly young man. This was one who was an example and who was loyal to the gospel. He was obedient to the word of God. He, like Gaius, was walking in the truth. And we saw that phrase, walking in the truth, that it has to do with being obedient to the Word of God. It can be used of us too. If we're being obedient to the Word of God, we are walking in the truth. When we're not obedient to the Word of God, we're not being those who are walking in the truth. This verb, martyreo, Translated in some versions, well-spoken. My version is translated testimony. I was reading another version this week. I think it was translated witness. But here's something that you need to know. And as I said last week, that there are a string of tenses that are used in in this letter. But now we're introduced to a different one. This is called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is actually implying... That the testimony to Demetrius had been given over a period of time. And it was still effective. And that's what you want. That's what you want people saying about you. Because over a long period of time, you, you prove to be this person who is walking in truth. This person who is living the righteousness of Christ in his life. Not a person who is caught up in sin. So you want that over a period of time. That perfect tense talks about a starting place that happened in the past, but it's still having continual results. And that was Demetrius. As a preacher, he fulfilled what we just read from 1 Timothy 3, 7, that he had a good reputation with those outside the church. But he also had a good reputation with those in the church, as we're hearing here. But let's ask another question. What actually makes a good reputation? I've hit on this already, but there are two specific things that I believe that lend to a good reputation. And the first one is integrity. It's based on integrity. Now, what do we mean by integrity? Well, that's just talking about being blameless, being upright in your heart, the basic meaning in the Old Testament had to do with a soundness of character, adherence to moral principle, uprightness, honesty, sincerity, purity of heart, purity of motive, upright in character. So as I said, when you hear that phrase, to walk in integrity, it's indicating and a habitual manner of life. And that habitual manner of life shows itself by being honest, by being pure, and by being sincere. In fact, the Greek word for sincere came from a clay pot. And what dealers used to do is if they had a crack in the pot, they would seal it with wax. And if you were... A shopper going to buy a clay pot, you know what you would do? is You would take the pot and hold it up to the sun. Because if it had a crack in it, you would be able to see it. I mean, what does that say about us in our lives? Are there cracks in our lives? I mean, again, do you, do you, do you act one way here and a different way when you're at home or you're around other people? We want to be consistent, right? Everybody in here presents themselves very well and being of God, being of Christ and loving the Word of God. But is that how you are at home? Men, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Ladies, are you husband lovers and children lovers as Titus 2 talks about? Are you obedient to the Word of God? I mean, obviously you're exercising obedience this morning in that in Hebrews 10, you are not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. There's some people say, we don't have to go to church. I've heard that over and over in the 30 plus years. But Hebrews 10 talks about you're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And apparently some were doing it because he says, as the manner is with some, some were doing that. And I'll tell you, you know, I know that there are circumstances and situations that happen in all of our lives, and sometimes things happen that are completely out of your control and make it where you can't be here. I understand that. And I bring all the stuff with me, meaning, if if I'm sick and I would love to call and have somebody else preach for me and I don't have somebody else to preach for me, guess what? I show up in my sickness... So I preach in sickness and in health. (laughs) And I usually stand up here and say, what have I told you all in the past? I'm sick. Don't come up here. (laughs) Because I don't want you to get it. But at the same time, the need is for the preaching of the word. And in the past, I haven't always had somebody that could preach for me. That's changed some now. Praise the Lord for that. But being blameless, that's not just true of the preacher. First Timothy 3.2 talks about in the qualifications as well as in Titus 1.6 that those who serve as elders in the church, these men are to be blameless, above reproach. But as I said when we went through those qualifications some time ago, I said, you know, what is true about the pastor is also true about the people. The very things that he is qualified in to be a pastor, that is to be true of the people. Aren't we all to be blameless and above reproach? Yes. In fact, I find this verse very interesting in light of this week, because this week being the week of Thanksgiving. But over in Philippians chapter 2, we hear these words. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be, what, blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast, and it's literally holding forth. You're holding forth the word of life. You're holding it out to people to give to them. And so as you do this, you want to make sure that your life doesn't undermine the Word of God. Even in Titus chapter 2, when it talks about the women in the church, it mentions in there about the older women teaching the younger women, but what are they to be teaching them? Well, it says in verse 4, to love their husbands... To love their children. So that's where we get husband lovers and children lovers. And then it says to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Now get this. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So what does that mean? If you're not these things, then the word of God is dishonored. Because you're disobedient to the word. Everything about our life is tied to our character. You do what you do because of your character, because of who you are, what you are. And as I said, it's so important. Over in Job chapter 2, Job talks about this whole concept of, And I find it very interesting that the testimony that Job had came from God himself. God said to Satan, Job 2.3, Have you considered my servant Job? Then listen to what he says about him. There is no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil... And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Earlier in the first verse of Job 1, it described Job as a blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And as you read the book of Job, that's exactly what you see. Now, Job's wife admitted his integrity when she discouragingly said in Job two nine, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die! Well, she obviously had no integrity to allow her pain and her loss to incite God. I was watching a video one day, and it was with R.C. Sproul, and the title was... It is dangerous to get angry at God. And this is what this woman was. She was angry. And the sad thing even about this, as talking about reputation, is what do you get about her reputation? What do you think of when you think of Job's wife? It's not good, is it? But what do you think of when you think of Job? You think of a man who went through some tremendous trials. But you also think of a man who was righteous, who was upright, who was blameless, who feared God. And his responses to those trials demonstrated that. I mean, what did he say at the end of chapter 1? Naked I came into this world, and naked I'll leave. And he had just lost everything he had. Well, just about everything he had. He had lost some of his kids. He had lost some of his possessions. And now he's got a wife here telling him to curse God and die. But he held to his integrity. This was a righteous man. Being blameless and upright in heart also leads you to be trusted. If you're this kind of person, you're the kind of person that can be trusted. You're the kind of person that can be commended by other people. Let me have you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There is an individual mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in verses 18 and following. He's not even mentioned by name. But he had a great reputation and he was a person who could be trusted with this offering to accompany uh, Paul. And his other co workers. But notice at verse 18 it says, We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread throughout all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been approved by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our readiness. Taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. So here he commends this man, as well as Titus, and talks about the kind of man that he was. They tested him, verse 22, found him to be diligent in many things, It also says in verse 18, his fame in the things of the gospel had spread throughout all the churches and that he was appointed by the churches to travel with them. See, you don't get that kind of commending if you're a diatrophies. So this man... He's unnamed because he was so well-known. He was prominent. He was unimpeachable. He was a distinguished preacher of the Word. He was able to add credibility to the enterprise of taking this offering to Jerusalem. Now, if you reach back into the Old Testament, when Nehemiah has been building the wall... And he was appointing people, like he appointed these people to be in charge of the storehouses. So he says, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Pedadiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. So see, if, if you're a person of integrity... You're also a person that can be trusted. You're also a person that's faithful, a person that is reliable. Another person I would think of would be Daniel. Over in Daniel 6, you had the commissioners and the saw traps. They were trying to find ground of accusation against Daniel. They did not like Daniel. And they were trying to find a way to discredit him. And it says in Daniel 6, 4, They could not find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So, you know, I I read these examples and, and I think in my own mind that this is attainable. You know, because these were men, just like I'm a man. And you men, and yes, include women too, and children, You you can be this kind of person because we have examples of others that were this. Now, I understand if you say, well, you know, there are certain characteristics about Jesus I can't be because he's Jesus, he's God. I understand that. But look at these other people that were sinners just like you and me and the kind of people that they were. So you can be this. Just like I said last week, You know, we being citizens here in America, and the government shouldn't be persecuting us because we're going to be the best people for them. Because we're going to be obedient. But I know really why they persecute us, because we also have to speak out against the corruption that they do. So a good reputation is based upon integrity. And it's also based on... Something else. And I want to have you to turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you know anything about Acts chapter 6, you know that this is when there were seven men chosen for a specific task. Some people believe that this was the first deacons, and it very well may be so. But I want you to notice something about these men that they chose. It says in verse 1 Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and says, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of what? Good reputation. That's the first thing in the list. So how important is your reputation? It certainly can reveal whether you have a genuine heart for ministry because you care so much about how your life is perceived before others that you don't want to do anything to discredit the ministry, discredit the church, or discredit the Word of God. So you're a person of good reputation. And then he says in verse 3, "...full of the Holy Spirit." and of wisdom. I find it very interesting that they had chose these seven men for this specific task of distributing food to the Hellenistic Jews. Interesting that the seven that they chose were all Greek-speaking Jews, ministering to Greek-speaking Jews. But these were people, these were men of good reputation, of the Holy Spirit, of wisdom. They were people that had integrity. They were people that could be trusted. They were faithful. They were reliable. They weren't like Judas who was in charge of the money bag, by the way, and he was always putting his hand in the money bag and taking money out. He was always stealing from the money bag. And none of the apostles knew that he was doing this. He wasn't a man of integrity. But again, you find here in Acts 6 this specific task where the Hellenistic Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. The apostle says, we can't leave the word of God to serve tables. So you need to choose seven men. And here's the qualification we're going to give you. They have to be of good reputation. They have to be full of the Spirit. And they have to be full of wisdom. And when you find those seven men that are like that, then you bring them back to us, and we will examine them too. And when they did that, and they brought them back, and they examined them, what happened? They laid their hands on them after they prayed. And they appointed them to that task. And we find later Stephen and Philip, two of the men in the list, God had other plans for them as well. They were evangelists. And God used them in preaching and spreading the gospel? Chuck Colson, he used to say that the three most important ingredients in Christian work are this. You ready? Integrity, integrity, integrity. That's the most important ingredients in any Christian ministry that you are a person of integrity and to have a good reputation was was essential for the seven since they would be entrusted with large sums of money to purchase the food to be distributed and again you know this is this is the character that we find in the new testament as we said of Timothy being well spoken of by the brethren, there in Acts twenty two twelve, there's another man named Ananias, not the, obviously the one that was killed. But it says that he was a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Well, that's the first word we hear about Demetrius. There is another one. He was well spoken of as a person of integrity because he had also received a good testimony from the truth itself. Look again at verse 12 in 3 John. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. W.B. Hole said, He said, Note. It is not that he bore witness to the truth, but that the truth bore witness to him. Demetrius was not the standard by which truth was tested. The truth was the standard by which he was tested. And having been so tested, he stood approved. Beloved, that is true of all people. This is why Spurgeon would say this to walk in the truth imports a life of integrity, a life of holiness, a life of faithfulness, a life of simplicity, which is the natural product of those principles of truth which the gospel teaches and which the Spirit of God enables us to receive. See, he practiced the truth, he was obedient to the truth. You know, John 3:21 says that he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And that's exactly what we could say about Demetrius. He came to the light. He practiced the truth. His deeds were manifested as having been wrought in God. You couldn't say that about Diotrephes. You can't say that about unbelievers, because they do not practice the truth. In fact, the false teachers that are behind these three letters, the Gnostics, John actually said in 1 John 1, 1.6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's just like I was mentioning in our FOF class this morning, Joyce Myers, who said that she is not a sinner, that she does not sin, and when she finally came to understand the forgiveness of Christ, She knew right then that she was no longer a sinner and that she no longer sinned. I wish I could say that about myself. But you know, the Bible talks about the heart being so desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart can deceive you as well as other people. That's why I'm against the little radio ad I heard on Caleb one time that said that you need to trust your heart. I don't want to trust my heart. If my heart is wicked, do you want to trust that? If my heart is deceptive, do I want to trust that? I mean, if evil things proceed out of my heart, do I want to trust that? No, I want to trust Christ. He is my trust. He's the object of my trust, not me. I mean, if I go back to Romans 7 and read what Paul wrote even about himself, talking about, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I have to say the same thing, and you too. Apart from Christ, we're wretched. Apart from walking in the Holy Spirit, we're going to walk in sin. If we're not filled with the Spirit on a moment-by-moment, daily basis, then what else are we filled with? You're either filled with the Spirit or you're filled with the flesh. You're either controlled by the Spirit or you're controlled by the flesh. Which is it? So you go back to the seven men in Acts chapter 6. They were full of the Spirit, so they were controlled by the Holy Spirit. You go back to Demetrius, he was controlled by the Spirit. You go back to Gaius, he was controlled by the Spirit. You go to Diotrephes, he walked in the flesh. The flesh controlled him, controlled his mouth. He spoke wicked words against John. He did wicked deeds. He tore up the letter that John wrote to them. He was subject to church discipline when John came. Remember John mentioned that? I'm going to call attention to his deeds, which he has done. See, Demetrius was an excellent role model because he practiced the truth of God's Word in his life. He was of noble character. He had the right kind of reputation that you and I should want to. And he not only practiced the truth, he proclaimed it. He talked about the truth. He was obedient to it. He was obedient to preach the truth. I admit that there are sometimes times there are certain things that the Bible gives that are really hard to swallow, and it makes it even more difficult as a preacher to stand up here and have to give them. But I will tell you this: I have never compromised that, and I 'm not going to compromise it now. I 've spent all my ministry trying to speak the truth, and I got kicked out of two churches for that, and I will continue to do that, because we have to speak the truth. And you're going to want, if anything, a pastor with integrity above all things instead of someone who's going to compromise the truth. And we have all kinds of situations that occur, so I'm not going to stand up here and toot my horn, but I'm just going to say we all get caught in different kinds of situations that challenge our integrity. And you never know how people are going to respond when you show that kind of Behavior in your life. I remember one time going to Office Depot and I got out to the car and I noticed there was something in the bag that didn't get rung up, so I went back in to pay for it. And I just remember the guy's response. He was shocked that anybody would come back and pay for something that he left the store with. I said, Well, this, this brings glory to God. I mean, I, I, my conscience would have ate me up, wouldn't yours? I didn't pay for this. Over in Psalm 40 and verse 10, David said that he did not hide God's righteousness within his heart. He spoke of his faithfulness and his salvation. He has not concealed God's loving kindness and God's truth from the great congregation. And I don't want to do that either. I don't want to conceal anything. That's why you find on the front of your bulletin, you find it on our website, where Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. See, that's, that's been my conviction all these years. I'd go sit in churches, and I would listen to the word being preached, and it's held back. It, it's not done with any kind of diligence. It's sermonettes for Christianettes, you know? It's, it's cute little talks. I believe that if we're going to say that this is the truth, and it is, then we need to teach all the truth. Charles Spurgeon also again said, The backbone of the preaching of Christ is a conviction of truth in Christ. I agree with that. And Demetrius did too. He believed this because he believed the Word of God. There's a man named Athanasius of Alexandria. He said this, The holy inspired scriptures are sufficient of themselves for the preaching of truth. That's what Proverbs 12, 17 says. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness, deceit. So when you preach truth, you're telling people what's right. You're telling people what God said. And we should be more concerned about that more than anything. I know we think about other people, and I said we should have a good reputation among other people. But ultimately, we should care about what God says about us. Well, he gives one more testimony in verse 12. He says he's received a good testimony from John and his colleagues. He says, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So John and his colleagues add their testimony about Demetrius. And because he has this wonderful recommendation, Gaius would have more then adequate motivation to receive Demetrius and to extend to him the gracious hospitality for which he was so well known. See, that really tells you that the whole issue here was Gaius had offered hospitality to traveling preachers. Diotrephes did not like that. It was a threat to him. And so he spews out all this venom. And so there's another gentleman that's coming through. His name is Demetrius. He is also a traveling preacher. He also has needs. And like I said last week, they did not have the hotels like we have today and plenty of places to stay. So they relied on the graciousness of the people to put them up. And what, is, what does John say? John says, You know that our testimony is true. Our testimony is true. And here's what John's testimony is He shows us what is true and what is false. And you've got to go back to his first letter to see this. But in 1 John 4 5 and 6, he said this. He's talking about the false prophets, are those who are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. But he says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And if you go back to verse 9, Diotrephes, he did not accept what we say, but Gaius and Demetrius did. Diotrephes put them out of the church. Gaius and Demetrius welcomed them. See, what Diotrephes was doing was pure evil, and it revealed the true nature of his heart. Again, verse 11 the one who does evil has not seen God. And that's John in his bold black and white statements. He says, If you're going to act like that, you're going to live like that, don't tell me you're a Christian. What's the number one thing that people proclaim today? They're Christians. And they have no clue what that means. So John ends his letter. He ends it the same way he ended 2 John. He said he had many things to write about, but he didn't want to do this with pen and paper, pen and ink. He wanted to see them shortly, and he wanted to speak face to face. I am just like that. You know, when I get into conversations with people and it first starts with a text and then it gets longer and then it gets longer and it gets longer, I'm like, let's just pick up the phone and talk. Personally, I don't like to text. But I do. Because it is a form of communication. And it can be a good thing. So I'm not speaking against it. But... Isn't it much better to talk face to face? I mean, because a text can be misunderstood. So can an email. Sometimes I read back over something I'm writing and I'm going, oh, that didn't sound right. I remember one time I, when I was driving, I tried the voice text. And I just sent it. Thought, man, this is the coolest technology. I got where I was going and I read it and went, oh my gosh, my text was cussing that's not what I said and I sent it to a pastor friend of mine and I wrote it again <laughs> I said uh, I was voice texting I just want you to know that and this is not what I wrote but you know it was gone it went out there in the te- technological land it went up there into the what's it the ionosphere where all that travels it was out there and there was no way to get it back well, the final benediction is here in verse 15 where he says, Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. And that was back to Gaius. Started with a greeting, ended with a greeting. What an encouragement. And also what a contrast to what John wrote as the main message in this letter. Warren Waresby, before we close, draws this contrast between 2nd and 3rd John. Listen to what he says. He says it's interesting to contrast these two little letters and to see the balance of truth that John presented. Second, John was written to a godly woman about her family, while third, John was written to a godly man about his church. John warned the elect lady about false teachers from the outside, but he warned Gaius about dictatorial leaders inside the fellowship. The false teachers in second John would appeal to love So that they might deny truth, while Diotrephes would appeal to truth as in a most unloving way, he would attack the brethren. So beloved, how we treat one another, it reveals what's really going on in our heart, whether there's truly been a transformation take place, in 1 John 3, 17, and I believe that this is a test that John gave here in 1 John three seventeen. he said that whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed, And in truth. And here, John is questioning the legitimacy of one's salvation for their lack of compassion for a brother in need and because they closed up their heart against him. Our love is to be like Gaius. Our love is to be like Demetrius. And this, again, is what it means to walk in the truth. When you walk in truth, you practice the truth, you have a good testimony before everyone. And to have that kind of testimony to the truth, you have to first know it, right? You have to know the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And My prayer is that everybody in here knows the truth. Jesus said that He is the truth. So to say, I know the truth, is to say, I know Jesus. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to the Father is through Him. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other way presented in the Bible to God but through Christ. So my question is, do you know Him this morning? The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, that the Ephesians were dead in trespasses and sins. In the following verses, they used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But then he says, but God made you alive. And then he says, a little further down in the chapter, that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Does that describe you? I hope so. But if you're here today without Christ, my prayer is that you would confess Him as Lord, understanding that the Scripture teaches that He is God, and that you would surrender your life to Him. You would give Him your life, because that's what it means to be saved. You exchange your life... For His life. Have you made the exchange? Oh, it's a wonderful exchange. You give up your rotten life for His perfect life. And His perfect life is applied to you. To where you're given the righteousness of God. But as Paul said in Philippians 3, it only comes by faith. You can't get it any other way. I can't work for it. I can't try to to be the best I can and keep all the law know, the Bible says that I'm a lawbreaker and I'm cursed because I've broken the law. And the only way that I can be delivered from that curse is to someone to take the curse for me. And he did. And he did it on the cross. And when you put your faith and your trust in him, in him alone, you trust him alone for your salvation, he will save you. But if you're not willing to give Him your whole life, you've got half half your foot in the kingdom and the other half in the world, you're not going to get saved. You're not saved. Or you live your life throughout the week and you say, I'm a Christian and I live whatever I want to do and I do whatever I want to do and I say whatever I want to say and I'm always telling people a piece of my mind. And it's not good. I have every reason to doubt your salvation. And you should too. I know that any time we sin, we are acting like unbelievers. Aren't we? And we look like them too. That's why sometimes it's very difficult to just come out with a blanket statement and say that person is not a Christian. Because we don't know everything about them. But beloved, I pray that your reputation is one of integrity and one that can be trusted. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word and for this opportunity for us to study it together. And the three weeks we have spent together in this letter, we thank you for it, Lord God. We pray that you would direct us in the next book that you want us to study. And God, that we will... Continue to be diligent in the truth. Thank you for what you taught us today. And help us, Lord, as we leave here to be those evangelists that are walking in truth and that are preaching the truth. I pray that we will tell as well as live and demonstrate the truth in our life. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And